Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and uh, I am co-hosting today. This is a weekday Bible Answer program where we take your questions, the audience, while we live stream to various social media platforms, questions about the Bible, about God's existence, about how to apply perhaps a specific passage to your life, or how to interpret God's Word properly, as it says, how to rightly handle the Word of Truth. So that's why we're here, and that's why we do what we're doing here today. So uh, please chime in if you want to follow along. And in studio with me today is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey. Hello, sir. How's it going? Good. Good. Uh, things going great here. Can't wait to dive in and see what the questions will answer today. Indeed. You never know you what never is know. coming down the pike. <laughs> well, I, I imagine you guys could easily write a book like the top 100 because you get so many of the same questions over and over again. You're yeah. working on, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it 100 or did I? Yeah, we got the top 20 for the sake of our junior hires. Mm, gotcha. Awesome. 30. 30. 30. And of course, uh, Pastor Sean Richards. Hello, sir. Hello. So glad to have you guys here today. And uh, for those of you who are listening in, maybe you come across this uh, uh, for the first time, maybe post, maybe you're just watching a rerun. And uh, I'd like to encourage you to join us live. And you can ask questions in multiple ways. Uh, first, you can join us on Facebook. Uh, go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. And just simply join the live stream. And in the chat section of the Facebook chat box there, you can just leave your question. And we will monitor that uh, throughout the program. So if you have a question and it's sincere and it's about the Bible, <laughs> we'd be happy to take it. If you'd prefer to watch on YouTube, you can go to our YouTube channel. And if you happen to catch us on these social media platforms, we would really appreciate if you'd subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services, not just this program, but our Sunday morning services, as well as our Wednesday evening Oasis service. We are a church that teaches book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you want to go through a, a particular book of the Bible and want to... Uh, go along with Pastor Scott, let's say, through the book of Revelation or Genesis or whatever it might be. Or even Ezekiel. Ezekiel. We're doing that on Wednesdays. Uh, we're in chapter... Talking about working without a net. Yeah. <laughs> we're moving into chapter 26. Awesome. Yeah. And so you can do that. You can uh, join us there and uh, go through uh, the entire book, which is really awesome because when you go through... A, a teaching series on a, a particular topic, you're going to be bouncing all over the place. But if you really want to just hone in on what the Bible says in this part of the Bible, then you can go through it verse by verse. So I'd encourage you to do that and catch our services. Again, if you are watching on YouTube, um, you can find us there by just simply looking for our handle, which is at a reason for hope 546, or you can just search for a reason for hope and you can find us that way as well. And if you do catch us on Facebook or YouTube, we would really appreciate it if you would share and like our uh, videos, and that way we could grow our audience. Our desire is to not uh, put a spotlight on ourselves or to grow our audience just for the sake of having a big audience, but our desire and hope is to give people a reason for hope in Christ and to have a personal relationship with the one true creator, God. We also archive our videos on Rumble, so if you uh, want to go through and look at our archives, you can do that there as well, and they're categorized uh, by the top three questions in each video, so you can do that. And if you happen to go there, please follow us. We'd like to grow our audience there as well. If you want to avoid social media altogether, you can actually catch the live stream and our services right on our website. So if you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and you hit that Watch Live tab, there's a little box that'll pop up. Uh, next to the video as it's live streaming. You can ask your questions there. 
as well as make prayer requests. There's a nifty little button. If you have something just really weighing heavy on your heart, um, please let us know. We'd be happy to go before our Creator on your behalf. We also have an app. If you go to the Apple or Google Play Store and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship, we have a really great little app where you can not only keep up with our calendar of events here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, but you can uh, go and listen to the live streams, uh, go through our services, go to our sermon archives, go through the books of the Bible. It even has a little digital Bible where you can highlight, leave notes, uh, create and join chat groups, and so much more. So I'd encourage you to download that if you haven't yet and you are a part of our community. If you want to quickly message us during this broadcast and don't want to make a sort of public social media question, uh, you can do so via email. And that's at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Now, for the most important part, I would encourage you, if you have the time and you spend time on the Twitter webs, to take a moment to follow our senior pastor, Scott, on Twitter. You can do that at ScottR4H, or you can just search for Scott Richards on Twitter. It's a very informative and entertaining Twitter feed. And uh, in my opinion, Twitter is like the last place where free speech exists, <laughs> on social media, that is, and which is ironic because it was the the place where we all was sort of avoided because if you said the wrong thing, you would just get shut down or Yeah, it, it has its strengths <laughs> and its weaknesses. I saw <laughs> someone comment that uh, having a large following on Twitter is kind of like being at the cool kids' table in the insane asylum, but <laughs> <laughs> which I think says a lot about the platform. But there are some uh, really good comments on there and some... Uh, uh, some very interesting ones. Uh, sometimes we get the opportunity to sort of call people in the car. If you want to find out, for instance, uh, what the latest screed from, say, the New Atheist is all about, a great place to go. Uh, one that I really found uh, interesting was uh, this fellow cut and pasted uh, this uh, thing that said that uh, renowned biblical scholar Bart Ehrman shows that Jesus never existed. Oh wow! And which I bet he'd be surprised to find that out. Would, uh, and I just responded by cutting and pasting a uh, quote from his book on the historical Jesus, where he said, "There's no doubt that Jesus exists." Now he denies that Jesus is God. He denies yeah. the resurrection, but he could never. He said, "No serious scholar ever doubts that Jesus mm -hmm. was a real historical individual." And yeah. most silly scholars. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it just. Um, that's kind of what we get into from time to time. It's just funny how uh, people will launch these uh, unsupported claims and do it in the sense of, well, I'm a free thinker and I'm really dealing with mm -hmm. the facts and just go, well, here you go. I always, it always catches me when I see those free thinking t-shirts and I thought, I'm obviously usually it's an atheist or someone in that kind of way of thinking and the idea that if you're a religious person, you're mentally ill or you have a mental crutch or you're you know have the blinders on and yeah. uh, it's quite the opposite i found well jude had <laughs> some very strong words about uh, false prophets who would promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved by various lusts hmm. uh usually if you see people leading with that sort of thing um you know i've said before that uh, in my experience and i can only go by my experience i've yet to run into an individual who is an atheist for strictly intellectual reasons 
that uh, intellectually sat down and indicated that in explosions in print shops really do make encyclopedias, uh, that the entire universe is an uncaused effect, and intellectually this is satisfying. Inevitably, uh, what you run into is that there are uh, moral atheists. In other words, there's people that have something going on in their life morally where they desperately wish there was no God, and so they mm. kind of have that, that fire going in their engine uh, that makes them very uh, pointed about uh, their attacks, not necessarily on Allah or Brahman or uh, Mazda or you know whatever uh, deity you might name, but the God of the Bible. Mm. That's the one they're after. But the other thing that I found is, and this was really true in my case when I considered myself to be an atheist, there's personal atheists. Mm. Uh, they're atheists because they either belong to some group where they are atheists, a lot of Marxist groups, far-left groups uh, say that religion is the opiate of the masses, and so to belong to the group, you've got to take that position. Uh, sometimes it's a, a family connection. Like for me, uh, my dad said, why does there have to be a beginning at all? You know, why do you have to even think that there's a creator? Religion's okay for little old ladies and people don't sleep well at night, but you don't need <laughs> that. Uh, you know, uh, you know it, it don't get carried away in that stuff. That was my dad's point of view. And I thought my dad was the smartest guy whoever lived, so I followed in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who do that. And when you question that, almost like questioning people who belong to a certain cult group uh, that their family's been invested in, maybe even for generations, uh, they get hot and bothered because instead of dealing with the intellectual issues or the spiritual issues, it's a personal issue. You're attacking my family. You're saying that we're wrong. You're mm -hmm. saying you know, that uh, you know, my dear old dad led me astray. Uh, words to that effect, you know, and so I, I think, you know, uh, one of the interesting questions always is that, uh, you know, where does the fuel for the fire come from? Well, mm. it usually comes from that, mm. but we digress, and Sean, would you like to open us up in a word of prayer? Before <laughs> treading further, <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We invite you to be here as well. Allow your people to be edified, exhorted, and comforted, and those who don't know you to be informed and convicted by your spirit towards the same thing that we're reveling in every single day, and that is what we look forward to seeing accomplished, the finished work of making us conform to the image of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Amen. questions? Well, questions. first real question that uh, has nothing to do with the Bible, but I figured, why not? <laughs> has Scott thought about adding threads to his socials? I left Twitter last year for my own reasons and joined threads last week. That is a terrible idea. No threads for you? No threads. Other than those cool shirts you like to wear? You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that I do hang out on Twitter is because you get a lot of uh, traffic from non-Christians. And, and I imagine threads would be the same way. But uh, one of the reasons that I don't expand out into all of that is, boy, oh boy, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you've got to exercise a lot of discipline if you get involved with social media because it'll start taking up all of your time. You know, you post something, you think it's helpful, or you answer somebody's question, or, or you know, somebody makes a statement and like the Bart Ehrman thing, you, you, you correct them. But then someone will always fire back, and you go, okay, just uh, one more response. And if you're not careful, man, it'll eat up hours, hours of your time. So um, to me, that's kind of where I'm camped out. I try to uh, maintain a discipline about how much time I spend on it. 
Uh, I highly recommend if you're finding yourself uh, almost getting addicted addicted to the dopamine rush from people responding back to you or having a certain amount of followers or things along this line, um, make sure that you take a step back from Twitter and uh, Facebook and these various social media platforms, threads, you name it. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a healthy thing just to have a day during the week where you go, I'm, I'm not going to go on it at all. And, uh, you know, read a book, you know, go on a walk with a loved one, you know, watch a sunset, you know, don't get Eat so moon cut. Stop murdering people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I think, I think we really need to be careful because uh, it can become addictive and it can end up being, to me, a, uh, a platform for not careful will really enhance um, really unproductive ways of relating to people. Uh, you know, the anonymity that is involved with Twitter. One of the things that I committed uh, in my social media journeys is that I wasn't going to be behind a, uh, an anonymous uh, sort of screen name or something like that. If I'm going to post something, uh, I have to really think twice because my name's going to go out with it. People say, oh, you know, we're going to dox you. We're going to reveal. Well, they don't have to dox me. Uh, not only do they know who I am, they know where I work. So the doxing thing is not an issue for me anyway. But uh, you have to be really, really careful that uh, you don't get pulled in. This uh, One of my good friends said, you can only roll in the mud with a pig so long where you figure out the pig's enjoying himself. Hmm. Uh, so exercise discretion. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. On the other side of the coin, we do need to go if you're going to reach uh, unhealthy people. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous to repentant, but sinners. So if uh, we can contribute in such a way that we share uh, not only the, the fact of the gospel, the reliability of the Christian faith, uh, what a personal relationship with Jesus can do in our life through our personal testimony, we can encourage others that are out there doing the work, then that, that's a good thing. But make sure it doesn't take over your whole life. That and we know the Threads platform has demonstrated in the very short time that it's existed, specifically targeting conservative Christian and nonconformist to progressivism views, we would be essentially putting ourselves in as much of a difficult situation as we often find on YouTube, which is why we're reaching out to platforms like Rumble, because we're essentially dancing mm. on thin ice. Yeah. We don't know when this program's going to be taken away from us, and we don't want to expand risk. We want to pursue opportunity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. What, uh, what's that famous statement? If you're going to walk on thin ice, you might as well dance. Yep. <laughs> so. Nice. <clears throat> well, here's a, a good question from one of our, um, I guess, Muslim li listeners. Uh, why do you believe that God is a man when Numbers 23:19 says clearly that God's not a man? Well, first and foremost, thank you for reading our scripture. Uh, it's rare among the Muslim community to actually give examples, and you deserve credit for that. When we're talking to Muslims, they're coming from a worldview that makes a special emphasis on the person of Jesus, that he was not God, he was a man. And therefore, since man is not God, this is the argument, this can't be a God-man. There is no such thing. You're either a God or a man. Jesus was a man, therefore he's not God. 
the Quran puts forward very poor arguments like Mary and Jesus ate food and that this uh, whole concept of God being dependent on something like food, how do you believe that God can go to the bathroom, how do you believe that God could be inside of a woman's womb, all sorts of attempts to tear down the name of Jesus and basically setting up a system where, okay, here's what God can't be. And I decided this, by the way, not scripture, but I decided this. Now, because Jesus didn't fill my definition, he can't be my definition of God. Well, great, but that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, another definition of God. When we're reading Numbers 23, 19, uh, first of all, it's important to ask who was saying that, <laughs> when it was being said, and more importantly, that the verse doesn't just say, God is not a man, the very sentence that you're quoting does in fact clarify what kind of point the author is making. Uh, first and foremost, let me set this up so that you can just get straight to the point, Dad. But the author, or not the author, or you the can, speaker. You can take it home. You, no, 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 by all means. Okay. But uh, when we're talking about the framework for this, the one who is speaking in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, was the false prophet. <laughs> Already a fun uh, source of information. Balaam, who was speaking to the king of Moab, Balak, when he was being told to curse the people of Israel, and he was failing to do so. The king calls him out on it and says, why aren't you doing what I'm paying you to do? And he comes up with this statement, and that's what? Verse 19. Right. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do so? Or has he spoken, and will he not make good? And Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot re reverse it. So the full context of that statement is, I'm not saying what God isn't going to say. If I'm even crooked and uh, shrewd as I am with finances, I'm willing to curse people for money, not necessarily because God's telling me to, but because I want God to. What is the statement? It's not a doctrinal denial of what God can and can't do. It's an affirmation of what God is doing, and that's what? Speaking. <laughs> right. He's going to say what he's going to say. I can't say something that God hasn't said, and that's a reiteration of what the angel of the Lord told him earlier on in the previous chapter, which, by the way, is credited to be God, but we'll talk about that another time if you'd like. The point of this passage was what? God is not a man that he should lie. That's the statement, the full, not even the full verse, but the full sentence that's being quoted here. Uh, you're going to run into this with Orthodox Jews, with Unitarians who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ, Jehovah's Witnesses in some cases, but especially Muslims. God's not a man. No, the passage says he's not a man that he should lie. It'd be like me saying, I'm not the kind of man who would fill in the blank. You know, I'm not the kind of man who steals things. I'm not the kind of man who would uh, lie to my parents right now. I'm not the kind of person who would do that sort of thing. You're not the kind of husband who cheats. You're not the kind of wife that would, you know. Or, or even describing the things that are characteristic of the species of human beings. Yeah. Uh, what are, what sooner or later are you going to run into when you deal with human beings? Well, you're going to run into sooner or later them playing fast and loose with the truth. And God's and, not the kind of person to do that sort of thing. It's not a description of his ontology. It's a clarification of his nature. He's yeah. not like you. Yeah, no more than it would be saying, well, God's not a man, therefore he can't love. Men love. God is not a man, so therefore he can't love. Well, no, <laughs> that just doesn't follow. Loving people is an attribute that you will find in human beings. 
but it doesn't mean that God is not capable of that sort of thing. Just like in this case, just because God, and it is true at this point in history, God had not adopted human nature yet. God the Son had not incarnated yet. But if we were to say, because Numbers 23:19 says that God is not a man, therefore he can't become a man. Well, now you're limiting God. And in this case, our God's bigger than yours because he's capable of entering creation. And if you want, first of all, further clarification, even within your own Quran, to the Muslim uh, speak, uh, asking the question here, uh, just quick clarifications. When Allah appeared to Moses in the burning bush, was that not entering creation? When Moses asked, you know, if it's a burning brand, I shall either receive some glad tidings or bring back a burning brand that you may warm yourself. And Moses hears a voice from the fire. This is not according to the Bible. This is according to the Quran. And what speaks from the fire? Blessed is he who is in the fire. I am Allah. It doesn't say Gabriel. It doesn't say, you know, specific. It's, Allah is entering the creation in the form of a fire. We have examples of this. It's not in conflict with your Quran. What you heard this from was from somebody in your community who was willing to quote not even a full sentence of not even half of a verse in order to solidify what they claim the Quran teaches to you. You are being lied to. So make sure that when you hear these sort of things about the Bible, you look them up, you finish the verse, maybe even read the next verse, yeah. and you'll find out what's being talked about. But as far as Numbers 23, 19, invalidating the concept of God becoming a man, in no way does it, does, does it do that. Make sure that you check out when you hear verses. And this is specifically to a Muslim audience. If we were talking to an Orthodox Jew, if we were talking to a Jehovah's Witness, or Unitarian, we'd go a different route. But just make sure that you understand that. And to those listening as well, catch people on these things. Sometimes it doesn't take that much mm. reading. Yeah, the other thing that I would say is, you know, well, then how could God become a man? Well, we've told that God incarnated through the virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, uh, uh, son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, uh, the, the word here is very strong, in other words, the essence of all that God is, did not consider it robbery or something to be held on to, to be equal with God. In other words, he not only had the very form of God, he was equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, that is the absolute essential form of a servant of servants, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This passage is called the kenosis from the Greek word that is used here that describes the emptying. And what it means is that when Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be God. He had a human nature fused with his divine nature, but it didn't make him any less God. He simply laid aside the voluntary exercise of all of his attributes and privileges as God so that he could reach people like us. As God, he lived a perfect, sinless life, something no man could ever do. As a man, he was able not only to experience the same temptations we go through, so that he is able to help us in time of need, as Hebrews chapter 4 indicates, but he was also able to die for us when he died on the cross. His human nature was able to die at that particular point, therefore thereby paying the price for our sins. 
So uh, when we talk about how this happened, we see it was a voluntary decision of God the Son to carry out the will of the Father, and that through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit overshadowed Mary, and so uh, Jesus entered into this world, experienced the whole continuum of human experience from conception all the way through death and finally to resurrection. Awesome. I agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm allowed to agree, I guess. Yeah. Uh, good. Well, thank you for your question, and thank you for listening to the broadcast. I hope, uh, I obviously, there's so many ways we could probably, angles you could debate that, but um, I think that kind of says it all. And if you want clarification, you know, continue to engage with us. We would love to hear from you again. Uh, thanks. Uh, next question. Um, this is a question from uh, Diana. <clears throat> Paul said the ideal was being single but that due to sexual morality, we should get married. So I do not agree that marriage is the ideal, although most people do want a lifelong spouse, although the ideal is singleness, scripturally speaking. Do you agree singleness is the ideal according to scripture? Um, no, let me uh, read the <laughs> point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, this is when he was addressing that topic. The conversation again starts in verse 1. You, I'm sure, are familiar with the passage. Concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Goes on to clarify marital roles, but people usually take that introduction and say, so therefore, if you really want to live the real Christian life, you need to remain a virgin. You need to remain celibate. You need to remain unmarried because that allows you to serve God undistracted. The problem is verse 7 exists. Uh, actually, let's start in verse yeah, that 6. that is always a problem. <laughs> but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. His own gift from God. So in the context of him saying this is not a commandment, this is not something from God. It is from the Holy Spirit, don't get me wrong. But he's saying this as a concession out of necessity. Why? Because this is and that is both equally classified as what? Singleness or marriage, a gift from God. Right. Paul was called to be single and equipped for it, both socially, emotionally, circumstantially, and yes, in terms of his self-control. People who don't have that gift will be given the opportunity to pursue that kind of ministry by God when he has them ready for it. But the point being made isn't to demean or diminish a ministry like marriage over singleness because it brings with it different advantages. No more than the status of being single is somehow inferior to being married because it also brings with it certain disadvantages. Right. When it comes down to it, again, speaking as the single man in the room, there are things that I can do as a single man that is just not available to someone who's in the min marriage of ministry. I can go home and just relax, be by myself, focus on and isolate my mind in order to process the day. You two in the room have someone else in your life who you have been called and equipped by God to not only tend to emotionally and socially, but in other ways as well. That is a responsibility that comes right. with you. You can't just, you know, assume that single status. Likewise, if, uh, you know, I was to uh, act like uh, Adrian in his younger days and just hurl myself off into the uh, nether regions of uh, Pakistan or China and risk getting my head blown off <laughs> because I want to preach the gospel to people who don't want to hear it, 
I can, I, I, my mom got get upset, but I can do that. There's not going to be a lot of people, maybe my insurance companies, but not a lot of people who are going to be devastated by that apart from the obvious. If on the other hand, you were to pursue that kind of ministry or dad, you were to go off with the ministry to Africa and stuff and the uh, Boko Haram group starts coming in trying to make sure that AIDS does stay in the village, true story, then you're going to uh, have to answer to someone at home. And the point being made is just that. You're called by God to this or that, but they're both callings from, excuse me, God. Don't think that one's superior or inferior to the other. Both have advantages, both have disadvantages. The point being made is, where's God called you? I'm content in my singleness until told otherwise. You guys are married, and pursuing that ministry as God calls and equips you by his spirit. But just be very careful with that mindset. It's not my calling, therefore I have the superior calling because I have these advantages. No, even Paul notes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is not a commandment, this is a concession. We have gifts from God. Mm. And, and the main reason he's writing, the, what he's writing in 1 Corinthians 7 about the single lifestyle being superior is because persecution was mm. coming down uh, pretty fast and furious. And an individual that was in that kind of environment again, is not only uh, in a situation where their life was going to be threatened, but their entire family's life could be threatened. And so Paul because, says because of the current distress, it's better not to be married at this time if you can avoid it. You can't avoid it. God's really calling you to do that. Then he, you know, he who, get, who uh, guides is going to provide. He's going to take care of you. But uh, in the circumstance being described here, it's not, as you mentioned, Sean, some kind of blanket thing that says, oh, well, you know, it's always better to be single than married. No, if you're called to be married, the worst thing you can do is, you know, again, isolate yourself from the possibility of glorifying God in that. If you're called to be single, one of the worst things you can do is kind of get into the pressure thing like, well, when are you going to get married? <laughs> you know, I used to get asked that a lot when I was single, and I'd say, well, uh, I suppose when I meet the right person, then one day it dawned on me, I said, I suppose I'll get married when I become the right person. And mm -hmm. so marriage is a ministry. You've got to be called to it. You've got to be equipped by God to be able to occupy that role. But so is singleness. And each have their own challenges. And in both ways, we can glorify God. So being single is not the Christian ideal, but it might be your ideal. Right. Because that's awesome. what God's calling you to. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for the question. I hope <clears throat> that was uh, helpful for you. Um, Thank you again for joining us on the program. Uh, let's see here. Oh, wrong tab. My bad. I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Mike, this is a great question from Mike. He wants to know if you're struggling to repent from something or a number of things, but can't, even though you've asked for help from God and tried, but just can't, uh, does this mean that you're an Esau who could not repent at all, even when he sought it with tears? I think there's confusion on what repent means. Yeah, well, let's take a look at the scripture being cited here, first of all. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and verse 14, we read, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know, afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So there's a real difference between tears 
right? And repentance. What's the difference? Well, first of all, tears is a emotional expression. Repentance is an ongoing change of heart, mind, and life. Right. And if we confuse the term repentance and how it's oftentimes used, especially in legalistic circles, where your salvation's dangled over your head on the basis of your works rather than Christ's, they would make repentance synonymous with just stopping sinning. If I repented from sin, that means I stopped sinning. If I don't stop sinning, that means I haven't repented. And since I haven't repented, does that mean I can't repent because I keep going back into this sin? Because if I repented from the sin, that means I'm stopping. Notice the faulty definition. When we are talking about genuine repentance, it is not an instantaneous 4G internet connection change from one tab to another. It, the word literally means to turn around. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to, uh, I think metanoia is the word, right? Yeah, yeah uh, to, a change of mind. Yeah. yeah, to change your mindset towards something, your behavior is not necessarily going to follow it. You're just going to see that as weird because now it's suddenly backwards to you. Why? Because you've changed direction. Old habits die hard, and sometimes we're given grace by God immediate and tremendous victory over certain areas of sin in our lives. But other times things are preserved in our lives, not necessarily so that we continue to indulge in them, but so that we understand that it's by grace that we've been saved, that apart from the fact that God's continual show of mercy to you is the only reason you're in the kingdom, the permittance of an ongoing struggle can keep an even worse sin like pride in check, which was the whole problem with Esau. He didn't see any priority or need for God, which is why the author of Hebrews brings him up. He despised his birthright. He had no interest in godly things. Uh, every time Jacob got something somewhat, we'll give him this much, right in the direction he was going in life, God was calling him to pursue a godly spouse. So Esau said, oh, brother's getting married? I know. I'll, I'll one-up him. I'll get two ungodly pagan <laughs> wives. And they drove his parents crazy. So the point being made was this. Esau had exactly the wrong heart, the exactly wrong mind. He didn't want any change of direction in God. He just wanted to avoid consequences. If you find yourself struggling and falling into sin, confession and restoration and ongoing repentance are certainly steps for that. Read 1 John 1, 9 through, or, uh, 1, 8 through 10. But if we ask the question, so how do I stop sinning? By the grace of the Holy Spirit, whether that takes time or not is another question. And you, we really need to, again, take, uh, I guess, a step back from our culture where we're used to anything being good as being quick, being effective, being immediate, and go more into the mindset of Scripture where it notes an effective change is one that first starts from within. Yeah. That was Jesus' mindset. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mike, if I can encourage you at all in all of this, um, you know, as we mentioned, the word repent, metanoia, means a change of mind. Well, what exactly does that mean scripturally? Well, maybe the best definition that we can find of this is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable form of worship. Now, if the period was right there and that was it, um, we'd probably say, well, that sounds great, but how do I, as a person that's really good at unholy things, ever get to the point where I'm holy? Well, that's why we've got verse 2. Says, and do not be conformed to this world that is squeezed into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing 
of your mind that you may approve what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You know, the word transform there, we get our word metamorphosis from that. It's like the, the process where a little ugly cal- uh, caterpillar spins a cocoon and then comes out transformed into a beautiful butterfly. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's a process. And I think it's really interesting how if we're going to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, it begins with this transformed mind. Repentance is a change of mind toward God, right? that results in a change of heart, a change of understanding of relationship with God that ultimately manifests itself in a transformed life where we become like Jesus in our character. But this is a process, Mike, and if I can encourage you in all of this, um, the fact that you feel bad about an area where you know it seems like you're walking in victories in this area is kind of hit and miss and three steps forward two steps back and and so on um understand something if god wasn't working in your life uh you wouldn't care you'd be like esau i mean the only reason that you'd care about this area in your life would be if maybe the practice of this particular area of sin was costing you something financially or personally or relationally. It would all be on the horizontal. That's where the Esau's of this world operated. He wanted all the goodies that came with being the firstborn, but the firstborn was also to be the spiritual leader of the family, and he really didn't want to have anything to do with that. So, you know, when we talk about the sorrow of this world, right, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says it produces death. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the sorrow of this world is sorrow that goes something like this. Well, I'm sorry if anyone was offended by what I did, the, the typical politician thing. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry that I got caught and there are consequences. Or <laughs> even worse, I'm sorry that you're being such a sore head about all of this. That's what I'm sorry about. I'm not sorry because my sin is leading me away from who God created me to be, conformed to the image of Jesus. I'm not sorry about that. I'm not broken over that. I'm broken that there's consequence for my sin. But if on the other side of the coin, Mike, you look at what's going on in your life, and you know before you became a Christian, you could indulge in whatever practice or or uh, attitude you name it uh, that uh, that you mention here, and it you wouldn't even break a sweat. You know, you just go with it, you know, because it felt good and it got you where you wanted to go. Uh, you know, you didn't have a conscience about these things. Or if you did, you made sure it got numbed real quick so you could go continue to go about doing it. But the fact that not only do you have a conscience about this, but that your conscience is constantly being stirred up about this when you stumble and when you fall, well, that tells me something. You are in process right now. It's beginning with this change of mind. You know that God's word is true. You know this area is not right anymore. You got to realize how huge that is in a world that's lost in darkness, right? That's a huge, huge step. Just realizing you got a sin problem. Unless the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you're not even going to realize you have a mm. sin problem. But you realize that you've got this sin problem. The next step is to, as often as you have to, uh, again, Sean, you mentioned 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we don't just confess our sins because, uh, well, okay, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, and I'll do this thing. And I'll, No, it, there's a cleansing that goes on with all of this. It's God beginning to transform our lives. And uh, let's face it, most of us have dug the hole pretty deep within our lives. You know, we might look at other people that, you know, maybe don't struggle as much as we do or, or don't struggle in a particular area like we do, and we look at them and they're way up here and we're way down there, and because we're way down here and because, you know, we get it right sometimes and then we, we stumble and fall, oh, I must uh, be like an Esau or something like that. Well, if you were like Esau, all you'd care about was the horizontal might. You wouldn't care about the heavenly. It's very clear you care about the heavenly. So here's the good news. God's working in your heart. The challenge is allow him to work in your heart so you fall so in love with Jesus, you fall out of love with some of these other things. That's where real transformation takes place. A love relationship is going to transform your life uh, far more effectively than a to-do or to-don't or being shamed or put down by other people. You know, I, I mean, could you imagine, for instance, uh, if uh, right after I got married to my wife, Pam, uh, you know, we come back from our honeymoon, I come home, uh, I say, hey, how's it going? And I go in the bathroom and I start getting uh, myself gussied up and dressed up. And she goes, well, where are you going? And I said, oh, well, I got a date tonight. I'm going to go out with this other girl. Well, how do you suppose my wife would react to all that? Well, first of all, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. She'd probably kill me. But the other thing would be this. Why don't I date other people as a married man? Well, I could say to my wife, Pam, well, hey, here I have the Arizona Revised Statutes on Marriage, and it frowns on, you know, again, adultery and polygamy. So you can count on me. I'm going to do this because this document says, by golly, that's my obligation to you. That would not be very satisfying. If on the other side of the coin, I look at my wife and I say, man, you know, I just love her so much. There's no way I would want to break her heart by doing something like this. You see, love is going to be a far greater transforming agent within my life than a to-do list or a to-don't list. Um, you know, and, and, and so I'd say in the process we've talked about here, the change of mind results in a change of heart, the results in a change of life. You know, I can't judge you, Mike, I, I, but it sounds to me like you're full on in that first step. You had a change of mind about your sin. Mm -hmm. God is now moving you into that place where your heart's changing, where you feel genuine sorrow about that area because it's messing up your relationship with God. Yeah, you, 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 you know, it, it's not because you got caught or there's consequences or someone looks down on you. It's because you're, you're kind of broken about not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit within you. So you're right in that place, and that's a good place to be because as the Lord causes you to taste and see that he's good, as you learn to walk with him and walk in love with him, pretty soon you're going to say to these things, you know what, Jesus, I love you so much, I don't want to break your heart by doing these things anymore. You know, I'm going to set these things aside. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God and God's perfect will, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, you're in a struggling situation right now. Viva la struggle. You know, I don't know what the word is in French. But uh, I'm glad you're struggling. And, and uh, that struggle shows uh, without doubt 
that uh, you've got a relationship with God and he's working in your life. Mm. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, don't despise the day of small things. Too many people get caught in the mindset of, man, if I really had victory, then I'd just be able to quit this cold turkey when they would, if they were put in that kind of situation, credit it all to themselves. They would be in the Galatian situation where they'd say, you who began in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The Spirit's going to work in His own timing, and if you are given a moment, a day, a change of pace where by your own strength you succumb to these things right away, and I'm sure we can all point to areas in our lives where there just was no struggle, and suddenly, to quote uh, Jim Carrey's iteration of the Grinch, I care. What's the deal? (laughs) That's a miracle, and we need to recognize that. But if, on the other hand, we're given more victory than, oddly enough, we can handle, it ends up being replaced by something worse, thinking that we're responsible for a work that God did. And that's probably the reason why in our own lives, as well as yours, there's a process that needs to happen here so that we don't get our eyes off of where the real source of our victory is. Little things, little things. I hope that helped, and that was a great question. I hope that that uh, really <clears throat> ministered to you today, uh, Mike. So thanks for the question. Uh, Light Skin Patriot <laughs> wants to know, what is the evidence of a lukewarm Christian? Are they saved? Were they ever saved? Well, probably the best thing to do with a question like this is to go to the book. Uh, the best example we have of someone who is characterized as lukewarm is an entire church group, the church at Laodicea. We meet in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, there we read this. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the culmination or the, the peak of the, the uh, creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Well, this was a very live illustration for the people in Laodicea, because Laodicea was located in a place where there weren't any uh, you know, easily accessible springs of water. Water had to be brought in by an aqueduct from quite a distance away. And this water that would come down the aqueduct over time uh, would be neither hot nor cold, it would be lukewarm. So lukewarm water was something we're really familiar with in Laodicea. Now, what causes someone to be so lukewarm that they're kind of disgusting to Jesus? Notice he defines it. In verse 17, he says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Well, the idea of eye salve there was something else that was really near and dear to the Laodiceans. The number one product that the Laodiceans produced was a form of eye ointment that was made uh, by mixing together chemicals with some of the volcanic soil from around Laodicea. It was supposed to have outstanding medicinal qualities. And if you've ever had pink eye or something like that, you know uh, that if you've got something that takes that away, uh, it's, a, it's a very valuable thing. Now, notice what caused their lukewarmness. They said, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now, is there anything wrong with being rich or wealthy? 
know, the Bible says, let those who are wealthy uh, use their wealth to bless others in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not when we have things, it's when things have us. And one of the greatest signs that things have us is this line here, I have need of nothing. Mm. The lukewarm life is a completely self-sufficient life. It's saying, I did it my way, I'm my own man, uh, I am the one that has uh, made all these things with my own two hands. Behold, Babylon, which I have made for my glory, as Nebuchadnezzar said, and we remember what happened to him after that, seven years of uh, basically walking around the South 40 thinking he was a cow. So God has a way of humbling people like this. So what made the Laodiceans so nauseating to Jesus? Well, they may have started out with this idea that Jesus loved them, that they were saved by grace through faith, that not of themselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But they made a crucial error that will cause your spiritual passion to uh, just be so radically declined, it'll, it'll make your, your head spin. They looked at the grace of God. They looked at even the blessings of God they were receiving. It doesn't seem like other churches that are mentioned here, they were undergoing persecution. So they kind of saw themselves as God's special favorites. Well, why did they see they were God's special favorites? Because of the things they possessed, not of the one who possessed them, that is Jesus. And boy, I can relate to this. Um, you know, when I first got saved, the idea that God loved me unconditionally that drew me to the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, like a magnet. Uh, I just couldn't believe that God loved me this much. But my own personality uh, is such that, you know, I really believed that uh, love was parceled out by achievement. You know, that's kind of how it worked in, in you know, the, some members of my family. You know, you just, you know, if you got good grades, if you achieved athletically, you know, you, you dated the, the cheerleader, whatever, uh, then you'd be approved of, and you'd receive that love. But it was always kind of like the carrot on the end of the stick. There was always another accomplishment that I felt like I had to achieve in order to feel worthy, in order to feel loved. So I get saved. I come to Jesus and I have this radical, unconditional love relationship with him, that he died for me when I was at my worst. But you know, it was really interesting. It didn't take long before I started to see God as a 700-foot-tall uh, representation of a critical parent I could never please. And so I started to try to do all of these things to please God. And if I shared my faith with somebody someday, or God used me to pray with somebody, or I read my Bible, or I prayed for a solid half hour before school or something like that, then I felt like I had need of nothing hmm. because I'd kept up my end of the bargain. And you know what really, the funny thing that happened to me was the passion and, and the zeal that I had for Jesus began to decline. You know, I, I became more enamored of what I was doing for God rather than what Jesus had done for me. And God had to take me through some real gyrations, including bring me to a place where I felt like I'd lost everything that I'd worked so hard to build up, until I realized that all those things I worked so hard to build up were an idol in my life. Wow. I was bowing to the idol of respect and recognition and reputation and being somebody. Uh, and God had to take all of that away 
so that I could see the only thing that made me right with him was his unconditional love. So, you know, whether it's wealth or riches, uh, you know, when we find ourselves saying, I have need of nothing, you know, I've arrived, I'm spiritually mature, you should be like me. Man, people I've run into like that say a lot about them, but uh, their relationship with Jesus, that's something I really want to emulate. And so Jesus basically recommends that these guys lose everything if it means really receiving what matters. And it kind of brings us back to that. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Mm. Then he man hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in to him. In other words, Jesus is going to be indwelling us, what a high and holy privilege that is, and dine with him and he with me. Picture mm. of intimate fellowship. So I guess to answer that question, does it mean the Laodiceans weren't believers? Well, no. Uh, why do I say that? Because Jesus is pictured as holding the seven stars in his hand. One of the seven stars was the church at Laodicea. Hmm. You know, in other words, he hadn't dismissed them. He hadn't cast them away. He was holding on to them. As you many know. as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He's yeah. addressing them as a church. He speaks to them as a church. He warns them like five out of the other seven churches, right. but that no more invalidated the salvation of percentages of that many churches than it did for them. But the fact they're being corrected, remember that, is not a note, oh, you've lost your salvation because God has to correct you on something. If God's not correcting you on something, it probably means you don't belong to him. Yeah, yeah, you know, if, uh, you know, the old saw, if, if uh, you can start drifting in your walk with God, there's no consequences. Uh, you, you can, you know, say, do the old myth of the lightning bolt. I'm going to indulge in this area of sin. Oh, because I know God, I, I better not do it because God's going to zap me. And then you fall and you get involved in that area of sin and nothing happens. You go, oh, there's no lightning bolt. Well, maybe that means that, um, you know, God isn't watching. Or, or maybe it means that I've got a different deal with God than other people. And he's going to cut a deal with me like he did with David and let me have all my concubines and wives and all this stuff. Heard Christians say that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it, it it's absolutely wrong. If you belong to Him, He's going to boy, He's going to reel you in when you start wandering away. He's going to discipline you as you need it. It's one of the greatest assurances of salvation is He's constantly conforming us to the image of Christ, and He's not going to give up on that project till it's done. Thank you, and thank you for those insights, Pastor Scott. I think we have time for one more question. <clears throat> Beb, Beb, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, I got something, a niche in my throat. Uh, Beb There's wants to know, roof too. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> is the Antichrist going to die, then be raised up? Is someone else going to take his place and then die and then be raised up? Or is the Antichrist just going to be wounded? And uh -oh. Satan or God heal and restore him? Uh, Adrian being a magician, what do you think? Uh, I'll let the no, Bible I'll let speak you, first. I'll, well, okay. Uh, the text seems to indicate uh, that he uh, saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him. You know, I think it's interesting. The language here is kind of cautious. It says one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. It doesn't say he was dead 
and he was resurrected. But it says a deadly wound or a wound that was beyond medical science ability to be able to do anything about is healed here. So was it, you know, a death and a resurrection? Uh, was it something that just looked like a death and a resurrection? Uh, we don't know. Say, you know, the film of John F. Kennedy uh, and the motorcade in Dallas. Uh, where literally you see the top of his head blown off and hmm. Jackie Kennedy trying to put it back on. Um, that was a deadly wound. He was still alive, apparently, when he got to the hospital, even after uh, a wound like that. Could you imagine if someone had the top of their head blown off, uh, they take him to the hospital, and some of the guy sits up, and he's none the worse for the wear. Yeah, and <clears throat> let's go off of what we know when it comes to the various attitudes people have with this passage three routes we can take the first is that like all satanic work the goal is the message not necessarily the miracle uh, when the antichrist the ultimate deceiver pulls off this deception uh, he's going to be given power by god to perform power signs, line wonders, all of Second Thessalonians 2, to deceive all nations. Even the very elect would have been deceived, but they have been warned beforehand. Right. Uh, the second way that we go about this, instead of being a permitted miracle as a counterfeit Messiah, that even though he'll imitate a quote-unquote resurrection, that he's a false Messiah, not because of the miracle, but because of the false message that accompanies it, that I'm God to be worshipped. The second is that, according to the power of Satan, is all power signs and lying wonders, that he's a deceiver, and that won't change in this, that he'll use deception to make the world think that he died. The third route is that uh, this isn't going to take place, it's this ebb and flow of evil destroying itself, but still somehow coming back again and again. Now, Adrian, you tend to go with the, uh, second, option, the, yeah. the second option. Yeah, well, I tend to agree with most of what you said, and maybe we can talk a little bit about We can start the show on Monday with yeah. that, Scott. But yeah. uh, thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend. We'll be here same place, same time on Monday. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.